Well, hey, good morning. How are we doing? Excellent. It's been a little bit since I've been here, but it's good to be back. For those of you that don't know me, my name is Josh, and I attend the Montrose campus. And so it's, it's always good to come up here and uh, see you all, see uh, another one of our Bridgewater campuses. Um, if you're new to Bridgewater, uh, we have five campuses, physical campuses, and then we have an online presence as well. Um, and we're glad that you're here. Um, one of the things that you're not supposed to do when you preach is really like shame people. Like you're not supposed, I'm not supposed to tell Josh he's wrong for doing this. So I'm not going to tell you that I'm one of the right people that doesn't set up Christmas decorations or play Christmas music until after Thanksgiving. I'm not going to tell you you're wrong if you do that. But I am going to tell you that I don't do Christmas music. I don't do Christmas decorations. I don't allow it. It's not allowed in my house. But I did make an exception last night. My uh, kids and I we, and my wife, we went shopping and they got a one car ride reprieve from the rule and we listened to Christmas music last night. It was a little bit traumatic for me. Um, I'm not going to lie, but it's, it's good to remember that these types of seasons have purposes, right? And this week we're coming up on Thanksgiving, and I truly hope that you enjoy that time with your family. And you're not going to want to miss as we get closer to Christmas here at Bridgewater. If you've never experienced Christmas at Bridgewater, it's truly something that you want to experience here firsthand. Um, if you're joining us with us for the first time, or maybe you've been tracking through the whole series with us, we have been looking at the story of Exodus. And, and we've been taking like a 30,000 feet view over the book of Exodus, kind of swooping down in, touching a couple points, and then swooping back up. And so today we're going to kind of conclude the series, and we're going to take another one of those really high views, and we're going to swoop in on one concluding idea. But if you're tracking with us, we have been looking at how God has taken certain events in the life of the people of Israel. And these are what we, what we read as God's chosen people. God chose them. And, and he did these things. He demonstrated the, his love in many different ways. He, he demonstrated that through deliverance from captivity in Egypt. He, he also demonstrated his power. Um, he, he gave them a new identity. He continued to provide for their needs, and he led them on a path. But maybe you're like me, and maybe you're like your teenagers, you enjoy asking the question, why? Well, maybe not teenagers so much as little kids, right? Why? Why did God do that? Why did God set them apart? Why did God save them? We're going to look at that today. Why did God do those things? And truly, we're going to, if, you, if you're the type that likes the answer, I'm going to give you the answer. God set them apart. God did that because he wanted to give them a purpose. He wanted to give them a, a commissioning and set them in a direction that truly we can identify with. Because that same reason that God chose the Israelites is the reason that God chose you and me, that God loves us, and he wants us to fulfill a purpose. To help us think about this, I want to talk about the idea of marriage. Now, somebody right now, I'm not going to point them out, but they, his girlfriend just nudged their boyfriend and was like, see, 
God's telling you, you need to ask that question, right? You need to pop the question. We're going to talk about marriage. Not exactly, but we all understand the concept of marriage, even if you're not married. Um, we understand the idea behind marriage. Now, um, I think my wife's picture is going to be up there. It's going to be, there it is. So that's me and my wife. We're like babies. I mean, seriously, if you've ever heard a guy say he married up, I absolutely married up. I married above my class, above my status. Um, my wife and I have been married this past July. It was 22 years, right? You're like, Josh, you're not even 25. How did you do that? My gray hair deceives. Um, but I have been married to my wife for 22 years. And, um, you know, when my wife and I met in college, um, after our first encounter, I realized that I actually had a class with my wife. And it's that like freshman seminar, freshman orientation class that if you go to college, all freshmen are supposed to take. And I remember I was sitting in my seat and, they, and I was sitting in, and right across the hall, uh, across the big hall was my wife and she was wearing this white dress and she was sitting in front of a window and I'm not making this up. And behind her was this fountain and the sun was casting down on the water and I'm not making it up. A rainbow shone down on my wife and there was my future bride, right? So I spent the next few months pursuing her. And guys, you understand what this is like. Gifts and, and, and time. And we spent hours and hours. This was back before cell phones. Like, there, guys, there was actually a time before cell phones. So we actually had to use the, the other purpose of a phone, and we talked to each other. Um, we talked for hours. You know, when we moved away, we wrote notes and mail. Like, you put a stamp on it, and it left. And then a couple of weeks later, you would hear from them, hey, I got it. Um, I mean, I pursued my wife. And ultimately, we got engaged. We were setting a point where we were going to get married. And then that day came, that, that moment we were standing in front of the pastor, and we arrived. We, we committed our lives. We, we set up vows, all of that anticipation, leading to that moment where we promised we would do certain things. And, and equally, we promised that we would not do other things. We would continue, we, we made these con commitments to continue to spend energy and effort in an overflow of growing to love each other more and more. And then the pastor said, I now pronounce you husband and wife. And it was at that moment that all of those rules and all of those boundaries and all of those restrictions appeared so limiting and so we cast them away. I'm not dealing with that. I am no longer going to adhere to the I cannot ever do this. Or I will always do that. Our pursuit of each other ended. Because we made it to the destination, right? We arrived at that moment. The pastor said we were married. We no longer had to try. The pursuit that led to the commitment brought boundaries. It would be foolish of us to say that those boundaries can go away now because we made it. We made it to the marriage. 
We no longer have to set aside certain things. What we know is marriage is a relationship that flourishes within boundaries. It's a love that leads you to make a covenant that we call marriage. And then that covenant protects the love that it produces. Marriage is also more of, less of a destination, like we're going to get married, less of that and more of an initiation or a beginning. While marriage is the culmination of that dating, it's also the beginning of another form of a relationship. A lifelong relationship of love and pursuit and devotion and sacrifice and affection and care. Marriage truly forever changes the one who enters it. There's two things, particularly with myself and my wife, Katie. Our vows that we had made to each other were the result of a relationship. We didn't make promises to each other so that we could get married. When we got married, we made promises to each other because of that relationship. Our enjoyment of our relationship is absolutely contingent on me and my wife fulfilling those promises, those covenant vows to each other. We all know that when vows are broken, the relationship suffers. No one enjoys all that marriage is supposed to provide when they break those vows. The second thing about mine and my wife's marriage was that our marriage ceremony launched us into a lifelong pursuit of each other. It didn't lead that that marriage was not the end of the pursuit. We, we put the finished flag up, we're done. It didn't give me the right to, and guys, I'm going to kind of pick on us for a little bit. Just because we're married doesn't mean we can't, we, we no longer have to provide love notes or cards or gestures or, or romantic gifts or dates. We didn't cross that finish line and say, okay, now we can go back to living our lives how we were before we even met each other. That marriage fundamentally changed me. And it, and it changed my wife equally. There are things, because I am married, I will never do again because I'm committed to my wife. It forever changed how I relate to the opposite sex. I am no longer a free agent. I am taken. And I will no longer do certain things. Because of my marriage, my relationship can flourish in ways that it could not outside of marriage. Now you might say, Josh, that's a kind of a weird introduction when we're thinking about the people of Israel. We're, we're finishing up Exodus. I don't know that there's any sort of marriage idea within Exodus. But what we see, we see 
immediately connectable parallels between the idea of marriage and a marriage relationship and a relationship with God. Up until this point, God has demonstrated his miraculous power as he delivered and redeemed his people from captivity in Egypt. He he has set them apart. He has identified them as his people. And, And we see throughout Exodus that God goes before them and then he comes behind them and, and continues to provide for them. He wants and desires that his people would live for him alone. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about all the different gods that were worshipped in Egypt. And, and, and the one true God, his desire was that the people of Israel would worship him alone. What we see, and maybe you and I can relate to this at different times, is the people of Israel kind of struggled with how do they live out that understanding? What does that look like practically to live and love a God and serve him alone? As we've seen, there's direct parallels and connections between the people of Israel and my life and your life. We can absolutely say that this story is not just an archaic historical story, but it is a story for me today. There's parallels within that that I can draw from. And there's times that I don't necessarily know how God wants me to do what he wants me to do. I mean, anybody else can relate to that. There's times where I just don't know how God wants me to do what he wants me to do. Or maybe I don't even know what God wants me to do. We can look at these these passages of Scripture, these stories, and we can understand that we all, all of us who are followers of God, have been called and given a purpose. And even if we don't know all the steps, we can understand that this is our purpose. Unfortunately for many of us, unfortunately for some of us, We say, that moment when I receive salvation, that is my destination. You've punched that get-out-of-jail-free card. I I no longer have to worry about that. Now I can sit back and relax. That's a sad truth, that there are some people who view this pursuit, this relationship with God as similar to a marriage ceremony. I have... I have become married or I have been saved and therefore I don't have to do anything else. But instead, we need to look at our relationship with God in the same way as my relationship with my wife in our marriage ceremony is that that's not the culmination. That's the beginning. The moment of our salvation is the beginning of our relationship with God. But some of us say, but Josh, come on. I mean, have you read this thing? Do you know how many rules there are? How many, how many things I can't do? All the fun stuff I can't do? Do you know how many things there are here? And we, we view these, these rules of God and we say, oh, it's so restrictive. And therefore, I'm not going to do it. We're going to look at our text this morning in Exodus chapter 19. And from Exodus chapter 19, we're going to draw two truths that are going to help us as we pursue to live a life that God wants us to live as 
followers of God. Now, if you're here this morning and you say, Josh, I'm just checking this church thing out. Great. I'm glad you're here. You can pretty much tune me in out, out for another like 15, 18 minutes, all right? If you're here, though, and you're a follower of God, I hope that you can connect with this story that we're going to read in Exodus chapter 19. And we're going to read a, a chunk of verses, and I'm telling you this, I can read pretty fast, so just hang with me. We're going to read through Exodus chapter 19, verse 1. On the first day of the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, on that very day, they came to the desert in Sinai. After they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called, him, called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob, and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did in Egypt, and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the, the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. Now just for a little bit of context, it's been three months at this point in Exodus chapter 19, it's been about three months since the Israelites left Egypt. You remember that story? They left Egypt. They, they went through the sea. The walls crashed. The sea walls crashed down, killed all the, the Pharaoh and all of his army. It's been about three months. And now they're in the same place. It's pretty, pretty interesting how, how prophecy fulfills itself in Scripture. If you remember back in Exodus chapter 3, remember the burning bush? And, and God told Moses, I will be with you. And this, this burning bush will be a sign to you that I have sent you. And you will bring, he says, you will bring the people out of Egypt and you will worship on this mountain. That's where they are. They are in this same exact place here preparing to worship God. On this mountain. And so think about Moses. Moses heard that a long time before that God is saying, You're going to go get people out of Egypt and then you're going to bring them back here. And here they are in this same moment. And we notice throughout this, this, this portion of scripture that God begins to shape his people at Mount Sinai. He, he has brought them out. At his people. And, and what he's preparing to do, if you read the end there, and we're gonna we're gonna dissect that a little bit, but he's brought them out from Egypt and he's preparing to send them out into the world. But we notice that he doesn't just send them out on their own. He he sets them out with his presence, with his guidance, with his covenant, and he wants them to begin to live within that. So as you and I try to picture ourselves into this story and into this passage, I want to point out two things to us. And the first thing is this, is that we will flourish under God's law. I know that kind of rubs up against us, right? Anytime we hear like the speed limit is 55, we're like, oh, come on. I could clearly go faster than that and it not be dangerous. Like we rub up against laws. Anytime somebody says, you know, you can't chew gum in here, you're like, 
I bet you don't know I got gum. Right? We just, it, it's in our nature that we rub up against laws. I don't know many people who are like, this is what the rule is. I'm just going to abide by it, no questions asked. We will flourish, though, under God's law. Look at verse 5 with me of Exodus chapter 19. God says to Moses, If you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. We inherently reject law. That's just who we are. Our sin nature does not allow us to comply in that way. We become really self-righteous and self-focusing when we, really, when we start to think about this. But what we know is that Jesus fulfills the law perfectly on our behalf. We see that salvation, prior to the law, salvation came from slavery. The covenant was already given But they would only enjoy it. God says, you will only enjoy this life by following God's law. In in our first week here, we, we really looked at this idea of sin and and a and a contradiction against what God has for us. Often we think that I can handle sin, it's not that bad. I I can handle it on my own. I don't need God. Maybe we don't say those exact words, but by our actions, we're saying, I don't need to repent of this because I've got it under control. Jesus' brother James wrote in James chapter 1, he wrote this, this really challenge for us. He says, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror. And after looking at himself, he he forgets. He goes away and forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not only forgetting what they have heard but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. James says this law gives freedom. And again, that's, in and of itself, that sounds like a contradictory statement, right? Law, something restrictive, truly gives freedom. How does that happen? I bet you, I I would bet, that you have a law in your house that tells your kids or told your kids, you have to brush your teeth, right? I, I see some head nodding right there, right? Yes. That is a law that gives freedom. It gives you freedom in health. If you've ever had to have a root canal, it gives you freedom from pain. It gives you financial freedom. If there are any dentists in the house, I'm sorry, but that's expensive. It gives you freedom. In my house... We, we have a celebration that follows a dentist appointment with no cavities. Everybody gets ice cream. Which, as I'm saying that, it sounds pretty contradictory, like uh, self-defeating here. You know, hey, no cavities. We're going to fill you up with sugar. But that's a law that brings freedom. 
God is communicating to us that the blessings of God are never found outside of the boundaries of God. Let me say that again. The blessings of God are never found outside of the boundaries of God. The psalmist writes in Psalm 19, verses 7 through 11, he's describing those boundaries of God. He says, the law of the Lord is perfect. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy. The precepts of the Lord are right. The commands of the Lord are radiant. The fear of the Lord is pure. The decrees of the Lord are firm. They are more precious than gold. And in keeping them, there is great reward. Does that sound like how you view God's law? They're perfect. They're radiant. If not, it's not that God's law falls short, but that our understanding of God's law falls short. We often live our lives as though we could have so much more enjoyment if I didn't have all of these rules that God puts on me. And sometimes we think that enough and then we begin to act in that way. And and we find ourselves deceived and deluded. It's like the prodigal son who thinks, give me what's mine and I can go truly enjoy my life. And he has that aha moment where he says, what was I doing? It's not only the law and the boundaries of God that cause us to flourish, but when we think about it, that's the purpose, the reason that we should have for living. We flourish inside of the boundaries of God, especially when we carry that message and distribute that same message to someone else. If you've ever talk to someone who is newly married. They got nothing but good things to say, right? Get married. It's awesome. If you've talked to someone who's a new believer in Jesus equally, let me tell you about Jesus. It's awesome. He's awesome. We need to distribute That Because the second thing that we see in Exodus chapter 19 is that we are saved, we are chosen, we are set apart, we are are parallel with the Israelites for God's mission. Now I'm going to read a verse that's going to be part of Exodus chapter 19, and it's not going to be super clear what that means, but we're going to explain it. Exodus 19, although the whole earth is mine, God says, You will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. This is what God has called the the nation of Israel to be. A kingdom of priests, a holy nation. Now I want to understand and I want to kind of unpack just for a couple seconds here the idea of biblically what a priest means. Being a priest means because today, truthfully, Today, 
there is a definition or, or a thought that comes from when you hear a, a word, the word priest that isn't necessarily biblical. There are th- some things that happen or some things, some actions that are done that biblically don't line up with this, what Jesus is saying, that as the people of Israel, you are going to be, for me, a kingdom of priests. So biblically, a priest stands between God and man, God and humans, and, and helps draw humans closer to God by dispersing or communicating God's truth, by communicating God's justice and his favor and his love and his discipline and his holiness. That is truly what a priest's role biblically was to do, essentially to communicate the, the message of God to other people. Now, if you look at Exodus chapter 19, we see that this is just the beginning of this image that God gives out to the Israelites. So we look at the rest of Scripture, and we can understand how this played out in the lives of the Israelites. We see throughout Scripture that Israel was consistently, and they weren't perfect. Let's just start there. We all, if you know the Bible, you know that the Israelites had this like circle of like doing good, and then they started making bad choices, and then they got overtaken, and then they did good again, and it just was this constant cycle. But one thing that they, we see throughout Scripture is that Israel was an example to other nations. And, and often, people would look at the Israelites and say, something is different about those people. God is blessing them. Something is blessing them. I want to know more. So by their everyday lives, they were pointing people to God. We also see that the Israelites would proclaim the truth. They, they would challenge and, 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 and truly encourage and sometimes rebuke people and encourage them to repent and understand who God was and accept him, leading to often a confession and belief. So, so the Israelites, by their actions, they would point people to God. By their message, they would point people to God. We also see that the Israelites interceded for humankind, really. They offered sacrifices. They offered offerings to God, um, often repenting for the sins of the world, seeking to draw the distance, lessen the distance between God and man. So, So they lived their lives in a way that pointed people to God by their words. They pointed people to God. They interceded or prayed for people. And the last thing was that they would, they would keep the promises of God pure by recording and passing down from generation to generation how God interceded in the lives of themselves and those around, ultimately resulting in what you and I hold in our hands or on our phones. They, they kept God's word pure. They, they kept it of top priority in their lives, ultimately sharing it with those around. Israel's assignment by God required an intervention, required intermediation. They, they needed to go out 
God said, I do not want you to just be a people unto yourselves. You have a special relationship with me, God, he said. I want you to take that out into the world and as a result of that, bring people back to me. So as priests or a holy nation, they were to act as mediators of God's grace. They were realizing that their life was not just their life anymore. It was a, their life had a purpose, and that purpose was to communicate God to the rest of the world. And so they began to follow the law. And by following the law, they were demonstrating what a life of pursuit of God looks like. And, you know, if you've ever seen or experienced maybe some of you here today, you became a believer in God because there was just that one person at work and they were just a little bit different. And you wanted to know what was different about them. Or, or maybe they just, they never cursed. And you wanted to know why. I, I actually have had the privilege of that. I coached basketball with some people. I, I coached at the varsity level in a high school. And there's some of the people I coach with that don't have a problem using certain language. And I never do. And I've had people come up to me, why don't you curse? What a great opportunity. Just because I live my life slightly different, I'm able to share God with other people. We need to remember that we were delivered from sin to proclaim a message of deliverance. We were delivered from sin to proclaim a message of deliverance. My marriage to my wife, Katie, was the beginning, and it set me on a course that determined the shape and the trajectory and the purpose and the boundaries for my life. When I live in accordance with my covenant, I flourish. My marriage, my relationship flourishes through my choices every day. And even in the face of temptation, I'm able to declare to the world or to anybody who wants to know that I have made my choice. And my choice is my wife, Katie. I'm happy that people know that I'm married. I mean, I wear a symbol, which is just a symbol. I wear a symbol that tells the world that I am married, and I'm more than happy to show off my wife and to say, this is my, my wife. This is who I am married to. I'm happy to communicate that to the world. Now, I can just coexist with my wife. I can live in the house and, you know, we can be friendly to each other. Uh, we can just kind of have, you know, an okay relationship. But when I made a vow to my wife, I made a vow that I was going to continue to cultivate, continue to grow, love her more every day than the day before. And I need to pursue that because if I don't, I'm failing my vows. I'm failing in my marriage. 
when I live my life in that way, I'm, I'm even showing the world what the love of God looks like in my life. When we look at the lives of the people of Israel, we look at their journey. It started with salvation. That salvation sent them on a trajectory that we see is resulting in a purpose. God has offered each of us salvation. The salvation that we've been offered is nothing that we can do on our own. When we look at the, at the, the book of Exodus, Israel did nothing to earn the salvation that God offered. God just gave it to them. You and I, we've done nothing to merit or to earn the salvation that we have been offered. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 8, that, too, that we have been saved by grace through faith. It's not of ourselves. It's nothing that we have done that we could earn this salvation. It's not how well we keep the rules. It's not how much we don't sin or how much we, we, we resist certain things. Our salvation comes as a result of God's grace. And that's what God offered the people of Israel, and that's what God offers each of us. Once we receive that salvation, you and I have been given a similar commission, a similar commission that God gave the people of Israel to be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, people set apart, people different, communicating that message with other people. He wants us to be a light, truly a light to the nations. So as we kind of land the plane here, coming down from that 30,000 feet view, what lies have you believed that have kept you from loving God's law? What areas do you just rub up against? Man, this, I, I love God, but I just can't do this thing. What, what areas are, are, are you chafing up against? And if you're honest, you'll recognize that that chafing, that area that you rub up against God's law, I can do all of these things except this. That's the area that you need to work on. I'm not telling you anything you don't know. What we see so clearly in marriage, we need to equally see in our relationship with God that blessings, blessings from God are found within his boundaries. So, so what's your mission? We have an overall umbrella mission that we are to go out, preach the gospel, teach, make disciples of all nations. That's Matthew 28. We, we've all been given as followers of God that, that commissioning statement. As you look at your life, what do you live for? How active are you in telling others about Jesus? In a few weeks, you're going to have invite cards on your seat. I encourage you not to sit on them and forget about them. I encourage you to take them. And don't just take them and put them in the trash bag in your car. Take them and actually give somebody one. 
Did you know that the, the highest attendance comes from Christmas Eve is for highest attendance in the church historically, followed closely by Mother's Day. So you have a great opportunity to invite people to go to church. And, and most people are expecting that. So how often do you invite people to church? We believe at Bridgewater, one of our core values, one of the things that's at our DNA is that found people find people. If you're here and you believe that Jesus has found you, it should be within your DNA to go out and find people. The best case scenario of the human story can be your story. We began this series where we all begin, enslaved to sin. We've watched how God chooses an unlikely group of people to accomplish his purpose. And we've seen how God has purchased us a life for a life. We've seen how God sustains us through the life that he has called us to, even through all the challenges and difficulties. God is preparing us to make a huge difference in the world. I believe that. But that demands that we follow his commands and live on his mission. Let's pray. God, we thank you for all that you do. We thank you for your love. God, your love is good and so undeserving. God, we find ourselves failing you so often. God, it's, it's often not because we want to, but God, for some of us, we, we struggle. God, I ask today that you would encourage us, strengthen us to make that commitment to pursue you wholly. God, if there's anyone here this morning who's yet to understand what salvation is all about, may today be the day that they begin to understand that it's nothing that I can do, but it's by grace alone through Jesus and a belief in him that brings about salvation. God, we thank you and praise you for who you are. In Jesus' name, amen.